Hey everyone, Tom Salemer here. Welcome back to the MedTech Talk podcast. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is uh, no stranger to anyone in MedTech, Rick Randall. He is now the CEO of Omni Life Science, which is a robotic, surge- robotic assistance surgery company focused in uh, orthopedics. Rick, of course, has seen uh, uh, many, many different uh, uh, CEO chairs. Uh, he first sat in his uh, in the CEO chair at Target Therapeutics uh, when he joined in uh, 1989 and uh, has since taken three companies public, including Trans One in 2007, which has an interesting story to tell. And uh, Rick was kind enough to sort of walk us through his life in MedTech. And uh, as I said, he's been uh, uh, head of a company in the many different eras of, uh, of MedTech. He's taken companies public in the many different uh, phases of MedTech. So his, uh, his insights are unique, and uh, I was very happy to, uh, to spend the time with him. The conversation, because I found it so interesting, went longer than we typically go with these podcasts. So what I did was I split it into two parts. So we'll cover uh, Rick's uh, first part of Rick's career in today's episode, and then we'll pick up next week uh, with his work at Trans One and what he's currently doing at Omni Life Science. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Rick. Uh, he's got some great uh, opinions on where MedTech is, where it was, and, and where it's headed. And he also shares some uh, colorful anecdotes about how he actually found his way to MedTech, what he was doing before MedTech, and uh, what he was thinking when he first uh, sat down in, in uh, the CEO chair at uh, Target Therapeutics. So Rick was, again, generous with his time and his thoughts, so I'm grateful for that, and I hope you enjoy these conversations. Before I let you go, though, please do register for the MedTech Conference. It's coming up on June 1st in Minneapolis. We're seeing a great surge in uh, in registrations, and we're very grateful and would very much like to see you there. So go to medtechconference.com, sign up to attend the MedTech Conference. Please do use the MedTech Talk code. You'll save yourself $200, and uh, we'll, get to, uh, we'll get to see each other. If you do attend when you're in Minneapolis, when you're at the conference, please do come by and say hello. I would love to, uh, love to meet as many of you as I can. Hear your thoughts about MedTech, about the conference, and of course about this podcast. So again, go to MedTechConference.com, sign up for the June 1st MedTech Conference. Now let's get into this conversation with Rick Randall, CEO of Omni Life Science. All right, Rick Randall, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Tom. I'm glad we had a chance to meet at the Can Accord Conference. Uh, I sat in on uh, Omni Life's presentation and... Uh, it's great to see sort of another uh, robotic-assisted uh, orthopedic company emerging and, 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 and getting some traction. And I, I'd like to get into OmniLife's story in a little bit. But first, I, I typically open up these interviews with just a question as to how you found your way into MedTech. I've uh, done some reading on, about the subject, and, and I found your, your path interesting. So how did you find MedTech, or, or how did MedTech find you? I think MedTech found me. I I was a, uh, a high school biology teacher in upstate New York and, uh, and then found that uh, I could inc- uh, triple my, my, uh, my earnings uh, as I was getting married and, and, uh, and taking on greater responsibility by moving into uh, medical sales. And, mm-hmm. and after uh, establishing myself in the upstate New York market, I was recruited uh, by a company that uh, 
that was at the time just filing for the approval of a uh, a balloon catheter which revolutionized the uh the the healthcare market in many ways it revolutionized the treatment of coronary artery disease or heart disease a blockage of the coronary arteries and was it, to to my knowledge the first true minimally invasive therapy that found its way through the FDA and and became a commercial success and and so I I uh I marketed and sold the uh, first balloon angioplasty catheter uh that could be used in in coronary arteries of the heart uh back in 1980 and that really changed the world and kind of of uh uh set the course mm-hmm. for for my career uh, for the next uh, thirty plus years, and you were selling for for Bard. That was for Bard. That's correct. Yep. The USCI division of, of of Bard. Not many people know that. <laughs> well, I looked at your LinkedIn profile, so I wish I could. Okay, I'll be honest with my listeners. Nothing but total honesty here. Do you? Uh, was there something? Was it? Was it merely you looked at salaries and you said, "I need to find something more lucrative," or was there a moment that you sort of had to choose between? teaching in in med tech and do you ever sort of look back and, and wonder what if when you look at that moment i do um and and to be completely candid i i uh, got into the interview on a kind of on a on a bet or or a challenge <laughs> uh my uh my my fiance at the time was uh, uh looking at getting a job. She had lost her teaching job and uh, answered an ad in a newspaper and then told me that uh, they didn't want to hire a woman. And when I questioned her on that, uh, she, uh, I wasn't convinced. So having the same exact credentials as she had, I just picked up the phone and called the same guy sitting in the Holiday Inn someplace in Syracuse, New York. Oh my goodness. And, and I maybe changed a couple of lines in terms of the the uh, answers to the questions, the same questions he asked me, and uh, quite confident that that wasn't the case and I was going to get rejected, he asked me in for an interview. And I was really on the spot, and I said, okay, I'll come in for the interview. And and then when uh, when I interviewed for the job, uh, he commented about a few things in my background and how I presented myself in the interview that uh, that informed me or made me aware that uh, that I I may be able to succeed in convincing a physician to move from what they're doing today to something else. And he also convinced me that selling physicians is a very difficult thing to do because as scientists, they're they're taught not mm-hmm. to not to change unless there's strong evidence to do so. Um, so that that kind of was an eye opener. I took the job and and lo and behold, it was something that that uh, really set, again, the course for the rest of my career because everything I've been involved with ever since has been taking some emerging technology, invention, a whole new way of doing things, or moving the way of doing things to another physician who doesn't traditionally treat that disease state and convincing them that they too can make that change and be better off for it without a tremendous amount of empirical evidence. Interesting. Does it? Uh, do you tap into your, any of your teaching skills, uh, or did you at the all time? All the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. all the time. You saw me do it um, 
last week, although yep. I failed. Uh, uh, normally, when, when you're a, I, I, I lectured biology classes for two years, five times a day, and uh, what what you get very good at is you take your plan for that day, and uh, it full it completely fills the 30 minute time period or whatever you have, 45 minutes. And and what I learned is uh, you can kind of set a uh, a clock in your mind and and fit the content perfectly to the clock and you get good at that. And so when I typically present and in those in those financial uh, situations or the, the I try to avoid a lot of questions. So I'm if I'm caught on something I'm not exposed in front of a large group. I I tend to be able to uh, to go back on those skills and. If I have 20 minutes, I finish in 19 minutes and 45 seconds, not leaving enough time for questions. Now, at the Canaccord conference, uh, I I didn't realize it, but I picked the wrong slides. I had made some changes, uh-huh. and there were two slides missing. So I got to the end, and I was a couple of minutes early. <laughs> <laughs> It's like sliding in the home plate a few feet short, right? You're like, oh. Yeah, I mean, when I, finished, when I finished and looked at the clock in front of me and I said, well, there's two minutes I can take questions, you can't imagine how disappointed I was when I had to announce it. That's the first time that's happened probably in seven or eight years. <laughs> and I was there. I didn't see any sign of distress in your face. So, so. Uh, no, but it worked out in the end. It did. No, it was a good presentation. So let's move up the... the, the uh, the resume a bit. How did you find your way to uh, to Target Therapeutics? That was the first company that you became CEO of, correct? Right, and and I I must tell you that at the time I I was not looking for a CEO job, and frankly I thought that I wasn't probably ready for a CEO job. Uh, but a recruiter called me. Uh, Target was looking for a CEO to replace the founder slash CEO. And, uh, and ironically, uh, I had, uh, just, uh, uh, maybe two months before that I was at a, uh, a, a medical conference and, a, 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 an individual that I used to work with, uh, was manning the target therapeutics booth. And I didn't even know he had changed jobs and I didn't know what target therapeutics was. And so I, I, I chatted with him and he took me through what target was doing and and his message to me is this is what the company wanted to do and thinks it's doing but here's what it really should be doing and when i saw the products and listened to what he had to say obviously i i knew this guy and and i was in total agreement well lo and behold a short while later i get a call from a recruiter and uh and he felt i would be an ideal candidate for the job <laughs> and and so i um I ended up interviewing, uh, and uh, and and basically laid out an alternative plan uh, based on that conversation that had taken place a couple of weeks ago or months ago. And lo and behold, what I didn't know was the uh, individual I was talking to, uh, who was on the board of the company, was in total agreement with that and had been uh, had been debating this with other members of the of the board. So, uh, that, uh, that eventually led to me getting the, the job, but it also led to one of the first things I had to do was joining the company and letting, uh, quite a number of people who were focused on this other project go. That's so it was, uh, 
uh, it was an interesting way to, to to start. But that's how I I I got there. Basically, what 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 Target had was an interesting technology, although the company wasn't founded uh, to uh, on on this uh, opportunity. There were um, physicians, interventional neuroradiologists, picking up this catheter system, what was which was designed to eventually treat uh, liver cancer, and threading it up into the brain. And when you looked at the uh, revenue growth, the revenue growth was stemming from the use of the catheter in the in the in the brain, uh, and that wasn't the original business plan. So what I was able to articulate was what can we do if we actually can put a catheter into the brain and, and can we build a business out of it? Mm -hmm. And and I had already done that. We had broken the barrier of threading a catheter into a coronary artery and changed the way that heart disease was treated. Why would we not be able to thread a catheter into the brain and treat uh, fundamental causes of, of stroke? Uh, through a through a minimally invasive non-surgical fashion. So now I had the job, and uh, the difficulty was, okay, you got the job. What are you going to do? How are mm-hmm. you going to build the business? And eventually, what I did was I I got the entire company together, and uh, some surgeon or neuro neuroradiologist had convinced me that if we could find a way from the inside out to fill an aneurysm and change the flow of the blood to bypass the aneurysm as opposed to flow into the aneurysm and then back out. If we could do that, there was substantial animal work that had been done on models that suggested that the aneurysm would close down itself. Uh, so I got, I got our engineers together and said, we have to find a way to drop something in, fill an aneurysm from the catheter that we have that can take us to the aneurysm and then leave that device to, behind. Well, to make a long story short, uh, that led to the invention of what is now the gold standard of, of, of treatment for, the, for a cerebral aneurysm, which is the coil technology. Uh, and, and Target then went from a company that had a catheter that could cross the circle of Willis and and routinely allow a physician to enter into the brain to a true therapeutic company where we had a device that we could market and sell at a at a very nice uh, price that would basically replace or eliminate the need in most patients for wide open intracranial surgery. That's remarkable. And lots of things to follow up on. It, it's I'm struck by the fact that You've got you found your way to into sales through the the the, the interaction with your fiance. The, the discussion with your friend led you to interview well, and then the input from that physician led you to sort of implement this this strategy. Is this consistent with how you've been leading throughout your career? It seems like you are very open to external suggestions, and you're able to kind of internalize it and then act on it. Is that is that a key to to, to being a, a good CEO? Uh, well, I think I think it is for companies, emerging technology companies, or companies that have to be rather uh, nimble in in finding the way to success. Uh, you 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 know you need to um, and and companies that need to innovate. 
I, I, I think what um, what you have to do is is what I the first thing I did when I joined Target, and this is the first thing I do with every company I've been with ever since, is is immediately I go I go out to the field. And I meet with the physicians that uh, represent the customer, mm-hmm. and 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 I and it builds. So you you get information and you build on that. And every interview you do with the next physician is probably a little bit different based on the information you just got from the last. And and if you know how to interview these people and you know how to probe them and question them and you listen to what they have to say. What what you can generally find is some consensus that indicates this is the direction we need to go. Mm-hmm. Um, this this makes sense and and this is a risk worth taking. And you also find out can I change someone's opinion? Uh, and and because you hear a variety of things, and then you you probe those people and you sell them basically. You try to convince them. Uh, based on the information you had from the others that you talked to, and and you do that enough, and eventually you land on something that you know makes sense, because it makes sense due to the fact that you're able to redirect someone's thinking and get them to agree that yeah, that does make sense. I'd be willing to try that. I'd like to mm-hmm. be involved with that project. Not everyone gives you the same feedback, but eventually by using those skills to uh, to probe and and to redirect and to create or to convince someone to think a little bit differently uh then then you can find often find the solution so i think it all does come back to those skills uh to to be able to do that all right we're going to take a quick break from this conversation to remind you to uh, sign up for the medtech conference Couldn't be more pleased with this year's agenda. Go to medtechconference.com. Check it out. Got Joe Almeida. Got Mike Mahoney. We've got terrific panels with great conversations about important subjects like fundraising, uh, PMA approvals, uh, getting reimbursement. It's it's all the essential things that anyone in medtech needs to know. So go to medtechconference.com. Check out the agenda. You'll be convinced to register. And once you do, use the MedTech Talk podcast code just type in medtech talk you'll save yourself a couple hundred bucks and have a great day in medtech on june 1st in minneapolis now back to this conversation and and when you joined target and and you implemented the the strategy that you had uh, sort of uh, won the job on and then you had to let people go i mean that really you're, you're you're working with live ammunition in that case you're you're people are being impacted by a strategy you're helping to help develop and are helping to implement. What did you sort of draw on to to make those decisions? Because you really hadn't had any experience prior that would, uh, I guess, give you insights on how to remove people from their jobs at, at that level. Well, what I did was as soon as I got to the company and and I I could meet the the uh, the rest of the team that I had not interviewed with, and and I could again you know, kind of test out the thesis that, uh, that, that in effect won me that job. And, and, and then what became apparent was the, that, that there was a group that I sensed really had a sense as to what was working and why and where it could go, 
what they really just needed was someone to work with them to or to be able to make that decision and lead the group going forward. Mm-hmm. So there was a a core group there at Target that really got it. They really understood it, and and they needed someone to basically say this is what we're going to do and have the board behind it, uh, behind that decision. And, and, and so it, it wasn't as difficult as I thought it was going to be because there were a number of people who, who really understood what was going to work and, and, and had the other technology or the other clinical application um, been the, the real winner, I think they would have understood that as well and mm-hmm. said, you know, we're selling some catheters in that brain thing, but we've got to stay the course. We still got to we still got to treat the these uh, these hepatic cell carcinomas because that's the real future of the company. But there were too many people who just got it, and it was it was based on what was what was happening with the technology in both arenas that just made the decision easy. Um, we we just need to make that make that call. I'm just curious, walking into the the target that first day as CEO, do you still feel like a a high school teacher at that point. I mean, you kind of wonder. Well, it's funny you should ask because I usually tell this. I usually tell this story to people that, I like like I said, I, I didn't have a a master plan to be the CEO of a medical device company. I, every job I had, I was so engaged with what I was doing, that I I just wasn't really thinking long term. I was just trying to make what we had today successful and, and win and. And and then I'll I'll never forget I walked into that twenty eight thousand square foot building and I went to the corner office and sat in the chair, and the only people I knew there were the people who I had interviewed with and I closed the door and just sat there, and, and I just had this overwhelming feeling of okay now what do I do <laughs> I, I, I'm here it's all on me everywhere I've ever been there's it, it's been on someone else there's. There's been someone to take direction from, and and this was that first moment where that didn't exist, and and I'll never forget that feeling and how overpowering it was. And yet, what I did was I just simply sat down and I thought about all of the companies that I worked at where I really loved what I did, and then I thought about those situations where I frankly wanted to leave or move on and go someplace else. I and I thought about what what was it that that as the leader now of this company, what was it that I liked so much about that company or that job? And is there a common denominator? And, and, and quickly I realized there was, and, um, and the common denominator was that I felt that the, the companies I was with, regardless of the position, if I felt like I was an informed vital part of that company, that I, I, I really had a say ultimately in how we did things. Not that I had to make all the decisions, but I was listened to, that I felt relevant. Uh, those are the companies and the jobs that I had at those companies that I really enjoyed and, and never thought of really about leaving unless someone offered me something I just couldn't refuse. And in the areas where I, uh, I really was looking to make a change, I just felt I came in and I did my job Mm -hmm. and, and I didn't know if my job was impactful. It wasn't necessarily tied to anything. Uh, I didn't feel like I was, uh, I was necessarily impacting or had an impact to where we were going with that company. So 
that day, that moment, um, it became crystal clear to me. The culture I have to set here, if it worked for me, I don't think I'm out, outside of the mainstream of humanity. Uh, this is what I got to do. This is the culture I have to create at this company. And that's what we did there. And it worked. Um, it, it, it worked for me. So when I applied it as the leader of the company, it worked. And that's what I've done, I think, at every company I've ever been at since. I was going to say that. I mean, that's that feeling of, of sitting there and thinking, this is all on, on me now. You can go two ways with that. You can kind of get lost in it and have it overtake you. Or you can really uh, use it to empower you. And in, in, in some ways, I don't think it's a bad idea to hold on to that feeling with every company you join, even the fourth, fifth, or sixth, because in every case, it's true. And later on in life, after you've, you, know, you get older and you strung a few of these together, I think it's sometimes easy to kind of forget that. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, or if you come into a company that, uh, that is larger and has a pre-existing culture, um, I found that the larger the company is, the, 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 the more difficult it is to change the existing culture mm -hmm. because there's more employees. It's, a, it's, it's harder to, you know, to, to just to get that, that, whole, that whole attitude to, to get people to buy, on it, buy in and, and believe that. And there's geographical differences as well. I've, I found, you know, in, in, in areas where we, like Silicon Valley, where, you know, culturally startups are, are, are uh, it's, it's just part, it's in the water there. You mm -hmm. know, uh, in those areas, um, it's much more easy to impart that culture because that's kind of why people go there. And, and, and yet when you come back to where I'm at now in Boston, in the, in the Northeast, uh, you know, it's a, it, it's a little more traditional and uh, and a little more conservative that way. Uh, so it, there are some regional differences, but the culture is very important. Now, how long were you at Target for? Uh, I see you were also involved with Conceptus and Innovative Divisive at, at the time. So what was what were the '90s like for you? It sounded like you had a few projects in the air. Yeah. So what happened at, at, at Target? We took it public in '92. I joined in '89, uh, and then a couple of years after being a publicly traded CEO, I, uh, you know, we we had this coil technology up and running, and but that but I had a personal uh, matter that really required me to to consider moving back east. Hmm. Uh, it would just be better for my family. Uh, if I, uh, and my daughter, if, if we made the move back East and, and, and so we, we did. And I, I walked away from a lot because really the company was, was doing really well. And, and on the other hand, um, I, I didn't enjoy as much being the, uh, being the CEO of a publicly traded company at that time as I had done, you know, before when it was private, as I did before when it was private. But, so we made that move, and, and fortunately, I was able to stay on the board, and I took a chairman job until then I got a little bit bored back east, and <laughs> I, I, I was offered up a new CEO job with the next startup, and I moved on, but, but I was able to stay on the target board all the way through to the acquisition by Boston Scientific uh, in, uh, in 1996. So uh, then... Uh, moving back east, I got involved and I completely moved from cardiovascular over to sports medicine, which was my my first soiree, soiree, soiree into orthopedics. 
and, uh, and, and headed up uh, Innovative Devices. And, and we took that public in 96. Now, along the way, while I was at uh, Target, I got a call one day uh, out of the blue from a physician at Cedar sinai a gynecologist at Cedar Cedar sinai who announced to me that uh, he had uh, had traversed three fallopian tubes with our brain catheter and had a customized scope from Mitsubishi that he placed through the or Olympus rather through the fallopian through the catheter and for the first time ever was able to image fallopian tubes and 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 the ovaries and do a differential diagnosis on infertility for a woman patient and completely changed the way that he was going to treat that patient based on that information. Um, that eventually led to the formation of a company by the name of Conceptus. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I was the founder of that. And basically what we did was we used the target technology, applied it to, uh, to, uh, to this uh, area, uh, I hired a, a guy to come in and basically manage it without disrupting uh, our business at Target, but he had access to all of the IP and the technology that we had. And, um, and then we took that public in 1996, and a couple of years ago, that, that company was bought for over a billion dollars by Bayer. Um, so it, it's interesting because eventually Target was purchased by Boston Scientific for 1.3 billion, and then Bayer later bought Conceptus for 1. Point something billion, or right around a billion dollars. I was long gone off the board by then, but um, a lot came out of that single catheter technology. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, no kidding, <laughs> a couple of billion. Uh, and yet, Concept does Conceptus happen if you don't make that choice to go east with your family? Uh, no, Conceptus happened. It, it happened actually before I moved east. That's right. Yeah. And fortunately, when I moved east, I, I also was able to stay on the board there and represent uh, Target's uh, ownership. Mm-hmm. And I was on the board of Conceptus through the IPO. And later on, when I was busy with some other things, it, it just made sense to to leave the board. I wasn't there up to the acquisition by Bayer, but uh, but I but I. I did uh, spend quite a bit of time there as a director. And, and what was the experience at Innovative Devices like? Yeah, that was a little more challenging. So by now I'm feeling my oats and, and uh, think I've, I've got, a, got it all figured out. And I moved to Innovative. And, uh, and again, uh, the goal was uh, we had technology that we felt could really change the way sports injuries uh, or joint injuries were treated and and uh, move away from metallic hardware uh, arthroscopically uh, placed to to bioabsorbable initially uh, polymer technology and then moving to bioabsorbables and and we did that uh, but but what was challenging there was the distribution model that we had used in cardiovascular uh, was fundamentally not going to work very well in sports medicine. And, and the reason being that uh, orthopedic surgeons, as opposed to uh, uh, cardiologists or radiologists, um, they fully expect that the representative is going to be there to service the entire procedure. And, and, 
and so that that works pretty well if you have a four thousand dollar hip or knee that that you're replacing but the economics make it more difficult when first prize is maybe a four hundred dollar sale to repair a rotator cuff mm-hmm. or a five hundred dollar sale to reconstruct an acl tendon and uh, and so you know having a direct sales force uh was was extremely difficult uh to do and and to succeed so we had to develop a uh an independent sales force which then made it more difficult to consult cons- really control the the selling process the other challenge at innovative was there wasn't a single disease state at that time that was sizable enough that if we came up with the winning product that we we could value create huge value for the company and uh and in sports medicine the you know the 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 road to success is to have a smattering of of novel products to treat all of the things that the physician uh the physician uh uh works on and and so we we really had to uh we had to do well in several in several areas you you know you had shoulder repair rotator cuff repair in the shoulder you had acl repair you had meniscal tears all of these things that had to be you know had to be addressed so it was a more difficult business model and uh we took it public in 96 I was going to ask about uh, that but but then i realized that the the you know the chance of building a 1 billion dollar company valued company here is going to be require much much more cash or much much more time and patience than my venture capital backers have and uh, and so we we eventually sold that to uh, Johnson and Johnson, uh, which created a, a reasonable return for the shareholder, uh, but also put the company in a very good position to conti- and the employees in a good position to continue to, you know, to succeed and build. and And I'm proud to say I'm I'm about 400 yards down the road from the home office for that company today uh and and they still use uh, and and market uh, many of the products we had back in 2000 or derivatives of that product That's amazing. of those products so and i want to get into trans one in a second in that experience but the, the ability to take a company public that uh had so many question marks to it is is such a stark contrast to today and i suspect gave you a lot more courage to try new things and to innovate and to to uh to to start new companies as opposed to today when you really you don't get a lot, as many potential shots on net what was what was that time like compared to uh to what we're seeing now yeah it's a good question you know, i took a i took a company my first company public in 92 uh second company uh uh in 96 and then uh then you know trans one which we'll talk about in a bit but i took trans one public in 2007 and and all three experiences were were very different and and it's a and and fundamentally the the world has changed a little bit as to what a public market will support so similar to biotech today or at least where biotech was up and up until recently uh we could we could take a company public in 1992 uh and 1996 on a uh, a story 
uh, a little bit of revenue perhaps, and uh, you know, and, and a market, a, a business plan, and a market that made sense, and some, you know, some evidence that your technology could make a difference and win in the marketplace, and 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 why that was so important back then. That model was so important for the typical venture capitalist who has, you know, maybe a four to six year time horizon on on what how much time they would like an investment they would like to make into a company before they saw an exit and a return for their fund that fit you know they they could get involved with a company and in four to six years you should be able to take a concept all the way through to a fda clearance all the way through to commercialization uh, get your revenue up to four to ten million dollars and go public and we did that and and many of the companies back then who prospered uh, did that. Uh, we did that at Conceptus, we did that at Target, and we did that again at Innovasive. In 2007 and today, um, that model's changed. And you need to really show some significant revenue. I, I, I think uh, you know in the in a minimum of 30 or 40 million, uh, uh, ideally more than that. Which means that, and and also along the way, we've inserted new hurdles like reimbursement. I mean, up through Innovative Devices, we frankly never had to worry about getting paid for for a, for a device as long it was as it was treating something that had been treated before. The the system would find a way to pay for that. So we had to focus all our, of our efforts on getting getting it through the FDA having the device cleared and approved by the FDA. And secondly, being able to show that the dogs will eat the dog food. We, mm-hmm. can, sell the, we can sell the product in the marketplace. If we did that, we were good to go. But, but today, uh, there's longer FDA cycles. Uh, and then you have to secure reimbursement. And, and oftentimes, these new devices, novel devices, need to have a separate reimbursement from uh, from what exists today, and uh, and then and only then can you start the commercialization process. So and you add a higher bar of revenue attainment before the public markets will have an appetite for your technology, and you're talking about a decade perhaps as a cycle. Um, so so that that starts to to really uh, extend itself outside of the traditional venture capital model. Sure. And which has led now the financing of these uh, early stage companies, uh, financing them is a much more difficult challenge. And I'm fearful that our our innovation pipeline is 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 uh, or our ability to innovate is is adversely affected by the fact that we haven't landed on a really good financing model for these for these companies because the public market's just not going to be there for a, for quite some time. Unless you really have, you know, kind of a chain reaction of of events that gets you to that commercialization stage much faster than some of these innovative products are are facing. All right, everyone, that is a wrap. Thanks so much for joining us on the MedTech Talk podcast. Rick Randall, thank you for sharing your story. I really look forward to bringing part two of our conversation next week. We'll get into trends one the unfortunate issues it had with reimbursement. And of course, we'll talk about Omni and uh, other issues that Rick encountered 
in his uh, storied med tech career. So, again, Rick, thanks for uh, being so generous with your time. Podcast listeners, thanks again for joining us. Do us a few favors on iTunes. Give us a ranking. It'll help people find the podcast. Tell your friends and colleagues about the podcast. We'd love to have more people listening. The more, the better. Finally, if you have thoughts about topics or guests, email me at tom at healthogy.com. We spell healthogy, word health, followed by letters egy.com. Healthogy produces the MedTech Todd podcast and the MedTech conference. So we'd love to hear from you. Uh, Promise to respond. Really do enjoy hearing directly from our podcast listeners. Finally, go to medtechconference.com. Sign up for the MedTech Conference. Our co-chairs, Stacey Enzing-Singh and Kevin Hikes, have done a great job putting together a great program if you take a look at the agenda. You will agree. And if you do register, when you do register, use the MedTech Talk code. Save yourself $200. And uh, we'll see you in Minneapolis.